and said you had to stop me. I'm sorry. Hey, g'day. My name is Jono. It's lovely to meet you. And I feel like I'm meeting you all for the first time because your faces are all behind masks. So we're strangers again, but we'll be through this soon, I hope. Uh, but I do want to say happy Mother's Day. I hope you did have a good day, uh, particularly if you are a mum. Hope the kids looked after you well today. I can't even... I see all the mums in the room. I'm sure there's a bunch of you here, but it's hard to see who's who. Uh, but I hope you had a good day together. Hope you ate some good Mother's Day food. Uh, I hope it was a good time. I hope the cleanup was all right. I hope, in fact, if you're a kid, if you're, yeah, if you're a child of a mum, I hope you gave mum a hand with that. Uh, sometimes it's pretty hard to clean up on mum's home turf, I reckon, because she's pretty good at what she does and we're not always very good at it. And sometimes what we do to help mum isn't up to her standards. You know, the kind of, the classic scene, uh, you know, everyone's come around for Mother's Day, we're at her house, that's particularly easy if you live there, but if you don't, you're visiting and you eat Mother's Day lunch together, everyone has a good time and then you're like, hey, I'll, I've got the clean-up covered, Mum, I'll do it, leave the dishes to me and you start trying to pack Mum's dishwasher. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you're trying to help but you're making all the classic mistakes that a rookie dishwasher packer would make. Uh, you put the knives in upside down and Mum's like, they're never going to get clean if you put, you've got to put them up the other way and then you've got, you put the bowls there and she's like, if you put the bowls there then the big plates won't fit there and the waste is, a, the wash is a waste and okay, you're making mistakes, put the cups in and she's like, no, you've got, you're putting the little cups in the big cup spot, you've got to move them up and eventually, you know, you, you put the pot somewhere near the door and you block the little flappy bit that hides the detergent and it lets the detergent out to make the wash good and by the end mum's eventually like, look, I'll stack the dishes, you go do something else, get out of the way. Uh, even with our best intentions, packing someone else's dishwasher on their home turf, it's a tough job. There's only one way to pack mum's dishwasher, her way. <laughs> now, who really cares about dishwashers? I'm sure you figured it out today. Uh, but have you ever had the feeling, what if, does God seem a little bit like that? Now, God doesn't care about how you pack your dishwasher. But when it comes to salvation, being right with God, do you ever get the feeling, is God being a little bit fussy, that's not a good word but I can't think of a better one, for no particular reason, is God being a bit picky about the way to be right with Him? Now, I don't know if you notice it here in our passage but there's one particular, it seems to be one particular way to be right with God. Chapter 10 verse 9, it says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's Jesus, it's by the name of Jesus, belief in Him seems to be the way to be right with God. Now, I don't know if that raises questions for you. Does, does Jesus really have to be the only way to be saved? And if so, why? <laughs> Doesn't it feel a little bit narrow, a little bit picky, maybe a bit arbitrary even, as if God's just chosen this random way? If it's with Jesus you're in, but if not, no. Only by the name of Jesus, no other name. Why? <laughs> Wouldn't it be better if there were a bunch of good ways to get to God, not just the one? Could there be any other way? Why does it have to be Jesus? Tonight's passage takes us right into the heart of God. It shows us what God wants from us. It shows us if Jesus is the only way and if He is, why? It's got huge implications for us, this passage, as we look at it together. Uh, first of all, for us all individually, really big implications, are you right with God? Do you know Him? Are you, when you meet Him, will you be ready for that? Secondly though, how should we spend our lives? This passage 
will show us, it, it shows us something that will actually change everything about what our priorities are and how we live our lives. This passage is huge. Let's pray and we're going to have a look at it together. Oh, Father God, we pray for this time now. Please help us to understand your word to us in front of us tonight. We pray you'd speak to us. We pray you'd do a huge work among us. Uh, for those of us who are not sure of who you are and we're not sure of the way to you, I pray you'd open our eyes to that tonight as well. Uh, please do a, a mighty work among us by your word and by your spirit. Amen. So, what's God doing? Why is it that at verse 9 it seems as though Jesus is the only way to God? Well, there's a bunch to see in this passage, but here's the first huge thing. Passion for God, on its own, is not enough. Uh, so, here in chapter 10, we've landed in the middle of a tricky discussion, a theological discussion about the Old Testament people of God, Israel. We've landed in the middle of this thing and Paul is answering the question, how did Israel get here? How do we get to this point? How can it be that the people of God, the original people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, they seem to be cut off from God? You can see the situation, verse 1 there. Have a look, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. See, Paul's praying that they would be saved, which implies right now many of them as it stands, they're actually lost. They need saving. And their problem isn't that they weren't keen on God, passionate about Him. This passage uses the word zealous, passionate, committed. Have a look at verse 2. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So it says there, they're keen on God, they're passionate, zealous about Him, at least in the religious sense they are, their whole life and culture was built around God and following Him. They had a, a sort of devotion to God, but there's a problem. Because verse 2, it says, their zeal is not based on knowledge. They were zealous about the wrong thing. They had a misdirected zeal for God. And the problem is, passion in and of itself, just being really excited or keen about God, isn't enough. It actually needs to be grounded in who God is and what He wants. It's not enough just to be really passionate and excited about God. So, think again about Mother's Day with me for a second. Have a think about this. Imagine Mother's Day, mum sits the kids down and she says, look, I don't need anything fancy this year. Fancy is a very Australian word, isn't it? Fancy. I don't need anything fancy. All I want is some flowers and a hug. That's all it is. Keep it simple. That's all I need. But then imagine, my, I've got two boys, uh, Luca and Gus, they're eight and they're f and five. Imagine they get quite ambitious for Mother's Day. They hear what mum says and they're like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. They're full of zeal and so they come up with a much bigger plan for Mother's Day, a plan that's more about what they want to do than what mum wants. And so step one, they're like, I reckon mum wants some extra pets. And so they head out into the streets and they find a whole bunch of stray dogs, which isn't easy, it's not like... We're living in Indonesia, but they find all these homeless dogs and they bring them home and they're flea-ridden and disgusting and, and they let them loose in her bedroom and they're like, Happy Mother's Day, we bought you 10 stray dogs and they're running around messing up the place. And then next step two, still full of lots of zeal and passion for mum, they decide that mum probably wants a new colour on her car. 
they grab a bunch of spray cans and they, they get out there and they start painting her black SUV, just whatever colour they can find. It ends up looking like a rainbow paddle pop, like it's just covered in all this spray paint. Is mum happy at that point? They were zealous. <laughs> they put in a whole bunch of effort, but is she happy? No. In fact, my kids would get in a lot of trouble if they did that. First thing, they failed to actually listen to what mum actually does want. But second, they've just done a bunch of stuff that they want to do. They want the dogs, they want to paint the car. They've worked really hard, but they've worked hard at entirely the wrong thing. Passion for God alone is not enough. Misguided zeal can actually be dangerous. You think of some of the darker sides of uh, religious zeal that can even lead to things like terrorism. Passion for God on its own is, is not enough. And so here's the first huge thing this passage means for us. It's possible to be a passionate, hard-working person who thinks they're doing a really good job of pleasing God, but one day you meet Him and you actually find that you've entirely missed what He wanted from you in the first place. That's a scary thought. It's a scary reality. It's possible you could be sitting here tonight Maybe your whole life you've been the church person, the person that your friends and family think of as the religious person. But have you actually come to God on His terms and heard from Him in His Word to us in the Bible what He wants from you? What's required of you for you to know Him? Have you seen that? Or have you been living your life assuming you know what God wants, He wants me to be good and I'm going to go do whatever I think is good. But you could be miles off is a critical thing to catch. Passion for God, misguided passion, isn't enough. Now, what did Israel get so wrong? What is it that they got so wrong? Why is the people of God, the original people of God, Israel, missing out on Him? Why was their zeal so misguided? Well, here's the second incredibly important thing to see tonight. Here it is. Rule-keeping is not enough either. So come back to the start of the passage that Ben read, come back into chapter 9 there, uh, Paul is talking about righteousness. Now, righteousness is being right with God. If you're righteous, you're a person who's good with God, you'll go to heaven. Uh, and he's, he's contrasting two types of righteousness. He's talking about righteousness by law-keeping, keeping the rules, versus another type, righteousness by faith. Have a look there, verse 30. He says, what shall we say? What then shall we say? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Now, Gentiles is just the non-Jews, everyone who isn't a Jew. And what be, what's been said here is huge. The people who were not the people of God, the Gentiles who weren't looking for righteousness in the Jewish way, well, they found it. They found a righteousness that is by faith, believing in Jesus. But, in contrast, verse 31, the Israelites, the ones who have the Old Testament law and the rule keepers, the ones who strive to climb the ladder and do all the right stuff, it says that currently they're missing out. They're not righteous. They've not found it. They're not saved. Now, why can't you get right with God by following the rules, by keeping the law. Why is keeping the Old Testament law never enough? 
Interestingly, verse 5 talks about following the law as a legitimate way of, of getting to God. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 5. Skip down there. Sorry, we're jumping around a bit. But chapter 10, verse 5 says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that's by the law. He quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. He says, The person who does these things will live by them. He's quoting there from Leviticus, reminding them of a genuine covenant, a, a promise that God made with his people. And, and the promise was, if you do these things, you'll live by them. You will be righteous. Similar to the covenant we saw in Deuteronomy 30 that Ben read out for us. If you 100% keep the rules of this covenant, it'll go well with you. You'll be all good. The problem is, the history of Israel time and time again is failure after failure after failure. The Old Testament part of our Bibles is the history of God being good to His people and His people failing to be good to them. And so, yes, you could be right with God if you kept the law perfectly and did what He asked you to do all the time, but the problem is no one has ever done that. And so the big lesson for us in the Old Testament is that in, in terms of the law, if you keep it, you'll be right with God. But the problem is, nobody did. And so what you actually learn as you see the Old Testament unfold is we don't need a rule book, we actually need a saviour. And so here's the big conclusion. On our own, brothers and sisters, visitors with us, on our own, based on what we do, before God, we're all lost. And it's up to us and how we live our lives before God, we're lost. I think lots of people think that Christianity is like this ladder that you have to climb to be right with God. And so at the top, there's the really, really good people and they're good with God. They're at the top of the ladder. There's the bad people, the murderers or whatever. They're at the bottom of the ladder. They're definitely not in. And then there's people in the middle and you don't, it's a bit vague, you don't really know, but you hope you're not, you know, at the bottom, you hope you make it, you hope you make the cut. But here's the thing. If you think of Christianity like that, you've got the scale entirely wrong. It doesn't capture it at all. It's a, it's a matter of getting a right perspective. Imagine you guys told me that I had to swim across Lake Macquarie. You're like, I reckon you should swim across Lake Macquarie. Maybe it's for a bet, something like that. People are like, I'll, get, I'll let you cut my hair if you can do it. Some sort of a situation like that that would never unfold here among us. Um, I probably wouldn't be able to swim across Lake Macquarie. I'd drown or the sharks would get me first. Now, my mate Jacob... He's a pretty good swimmer. He goes to swim squad and all that kind of stuff. He could probably do it, I reckon. He'd probably win that bet. But if you said to me, you have to swim from here to California, across the Pacific Ocean, well, whether it's me or whether it's Jacob, neither of us are even remotely close. Jacob might get a few more Ks out before he drowns, but neither of us are going to make it. That's the right perspective when it comes to getting to God based on our performance, what we do. Whether you look around at the people around you and you look squeaky clean compared to them and really good, or whether you feel like you're at the bottom of the ladder, either way, according to God's perfect standards of how we should live, according to His law, you're way off. Whether by a really long way plus a little bit that you're pretty good or a really long way plus you're terrible to begin with, either way, you're a long way from keeping God's law perfectly. And let's be clear about this, this is really important. This scale thing, this ocean we need to swim across, 
isn't because God's standards are unreasonable. It's not that. His standards are good and right and perfect. It's just that God is far better than we realise, far bigger and more wonderful than we realise. And our sin is actually much more serious than we realise. God's standards aren't wrong. The problem is with us. But here's the bottom line. You can't get right with God on your own. That's what this passage is saying. By keeping the rules, you cannot get right with God on your own. You don't need a rule book. You need a rescue. And here's the big thing this passage shows us. Here's the huge thing. You've heard the false ways. You've heard the dead ends. You won't get there through zeal and passion. You won't get there through keeping the rules yourself. The only way to be right with God is faith in Jesus. That's the big thing, and it's the big thing that Israel missed. Have a look at verse 32, back in chapter 9, sorry, up in chapter 9, verse 32. They missed it. It says, why have they missed their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They were pursuing righteousness, not by faith in Jesus, but as if it were by works. And so verse 33 says, well, it says, verse 32, uh, second part, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, quotes the Old Testament, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him, the rock, Jesus, will never be put to shame. The picture there is of Jesus and he's, the image is that he's like a stone that they're tripping over. The, the one that they so desperately need, the most important piece, Jesus, is right there in front of them and they're looking at all these other things and they miss Jesus himself and stumble over him. They didn't have their faith in him, they didn't have their trust in him and so they missed out on the key thing that they needed to be right with God. It's as if they've tripped over Jesus whilst looking for every other possible avenue to be right with God. They missed the important thing, the one who was right in front of them. I like to go spearfishing with uh, one of my friends, Hazy. You'll know him. Um, some of you know him. Uh, when we go spearfishing, he's notorious for forgetting stuff. When you go spearfishing, you just need to take a whole bunch of gear. You've got, you've got your gun, your flippers, your wetsuit, your float, your knife, your weight belt. There's a lot of things, mask, snorkel. There's a lot of things you've got to bring along. Every time we go, he always forgets something. So we'll turn up and you'll be like, nah, I didn't bring my socks for my flippers and you get a bunch of blisters i didn't bring my flippers one time he turned up with no flippers so he had one flipper each you skip leg day on one leg um but one time he turned up he every time forgets something no doubt we're up we're <laughs> but he turned up one time we get there and we're ready to go we're putting on all the gear all the details knives everything and he's like no he didn't bring his gun <laughs> he forgot to bring his spear gun when we were going out to spear fish <laughs> He forgot the key thing that no one has ever successfully speared a fish without. He forgot his spear. Jesus is the key. He is the thing that you need for salvation. Now, Israel were worried about all sorts of other things, but they missed the big thing. They missed the most significant thing. They missed the right way to be right with God. Even as they searched high and low for whatever other way themselves, they missed the way to be right with God. Now, why is Jesus the way to be right with God? Why is He the key? What makes Him the key that will work when nothing else will? Um, how does Jesus do what the law could never do for us? 
That's a really important question to work out. We're going to dive into that. It gets a little bit tricky, but it's really important. So work with me on this. Let's dig in. How can Jesus do what the law was never able to do? Have a look at verse 3. Sorry, chapter 10, verse 3. We're moving in and out of 9 and 10. Chapter 10, verse 3. Have a look there. Um, Here's the mistake Israel made. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So it starts again with getting it wrong. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They kept trying to do it by the law. But have a look at the difference Jesus makes in verse 4. It says, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the culmination of the law. Now, behind that word culmination, which we've got in our English translations, is a Greek word, and you learn a fancy word tonight, it's the word telos. It's a bit of a, it's a broad word, so it doesn't just mean culmination. That word telos, the Greek word, it captures up a whole bunch of things. It means fulfillment, it, it can mean the goal, the point of. It can even mean the end of, like the end point when you end it all. And so verse 4, when it says Christ is the telos of the law, the culmination of the law, there's a whole bunch of meaning packed into that little word there. And so yes, Jesus is the culmination or the fulfillment of the law, but He is also the end of the law. He finishes the law, He brings it to an end. He fulfills the law because the whole Old Testament is about Him, so that's true. The the law teaches us about Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the law. Um, But not only does Jesus teach us about the law, fulfill the law, uh, Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. It's really important to get. Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. He does what we were not able to do ourselves. You know, really common teaching in the New Testament is that Je- with Jesus, uh, we were under the, the people were under the old te- old covenant, but because of Jesus, we're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under a new covenant. So places like Hebrews chapter eight verse thirteen call the old covenant law, the law, obsolete and outdated. That's the New Testament talking about the law. It says that it's obsolete and outdated. But then the tricky thing is Jesus turns up in places like Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 and Jesus says things like, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them, which is a bit confusing, isn't it? Hebrews 8, the the Old Testament law is outdated and obsolete and then Jesus says, I've not come to get rid of it, I've come to fulfill it. So how does that all work together? How does... Romans chapter 10 verse 4 in front of us when Jesus says, when it says He's the culmination of the law, the fulfillment of the law, how does this all work together? Here it is, Jesus comes to end the law, so He does come to end it, finish it, by fulfilling the law for us. He doesn't just turn up and chuck it away, He turns up and fulfills the law for us. He does it completely on our behalf and so his perfect obedience of the law, his fulfillment of the law is actually granted to us, transferred to us. It's a little bit like this, some people picture the Old Testament law as like an exam that everyone used to have to sit, it's this exam and you need to get 100% 
and there's no hope of passing it because we're not good enough and so we're lost. And then some people imagine it's as if Jesus turns up in the new covenant, the new agreement, the new way, and he's like, no, no, forget about that exam you had to do before. Don't worry about it. Chuck it away. No one needs to sit the exam anymore. Old exam was dumb. Get rid of it. You don't need to pass it anymore. Some people imagine that's what Jesus has done when he's come. But that's not quite right. It doesn't quite capture Jesus' relationship to the law, which is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I haven't come to abolish the law, I haven't come to chuck out the exam, that's not what I'm doing. The exam actually matters. God's law is good and right and perfect. And so Jesus came to fulfill the law. It's as if he comes to sit the exam on our behalf. He doesn't turn up and say, the old exam was stupid, chuck it out. He turns up and sits the exam perfectly for us and he upholds the law as he fulfills it and ends it once once and for all by fulfilling it on our behalf. That's the difference that Jesus makes. And so for those whose faith is in Jesus, it's as if his perfect obedience, his track record of the perfect fulfillment of the law becomes their righteousness by faith. Their debt is paid, their failure to pass the exam is paid by his death on the cross and his perfect obedience is given to them. And all of this leads to the amazing outcome down in verse 9, their chapter 10 verse 9, of forgiveness uh, through belief, through faith. Have a look at verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the key now is belief in Jesus. It says it leads to salvation. Again, verse 10, it's belief. Have a look. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Again, it's your belief, which is shown in what you say with your mouth, which means you're justified, as if you'd never sinned in the first place. Again, verse 11, belief is key. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. You'll never be shown to have trusted in the wrong thing. Jesus is the key. Belief in Him is what's central. That's everything. Belief in Jesus. Trust in Him. Not, I believe the guy called Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. Belief in His work for you on the cross. Now, where does all this leave us here tonight? What, What does this do for us? Well, it leaves us with a wonderful truth but I still think a hard truth, a truth that's got an edge to it. See the the wonderful truth, the good news is that there's a way to be right with God and it's not about what you do, it's not about your performance, it's not about any of those things, it's not about your passion or the things you obey, it's what Jesus has done for us and that is such good news, He fulfills the law us he sits the exam for us he pays for our sin and so we can be forgiven that is such good news because what that means is being right with God's salvation isn't like a maybe I'm in maybe I'm not in kind of a situation it's done it's finished it's sure you can trust that it's complete all you need to do is trust that Jesus has done it for you come to him (laughs) that's the good news it's the best news But there is a hard edge to this truth, and I assume you've spotted it by now. There's a hard edge to the truth, because if Jesus is the way, and He's such a good way, we've also seen that He's 
the only one. He really is the only way. No, no other path to God will do it. Now, faith in Jesus is the way to be saved. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion that exists in our world. When you boil it down, almost every other religion is about what you need to do in some sense. Central to it is whether they even believe in God or not, whether it's getting to Nirvana or whatever it is, it is about what you do. Go and do these things and you'll be right with God. Go and do these things and you'll achieve the outcome that you want in your religion. Jesus is unique because it isn't about what you do. 100% a gift of grace that you trust him for. He's done it on your behalf. But it does mean this. All other religions, all other paths based on what you do as you earn your way to God, well, this passage says they fall short. Those paths don't lead to God, which is controversial and heavy. But this passage says trying to earn your way to God through whatever path is like trying to swim across the Pacific Ocean. You won't get there. And so there is no other way. Now this, and just to be clear, what this means as well is this isn't God just being picky, kind of arbitrarily being like, ah, oh, you can come to heaven if you know Jesus, but if not, tough. This isn't just some arbitrary weird decision God has made. Jesus is necessarily the only way to get to God. He's the only way it's possible, not God's arbitrary, silly decision. Now, the rest of this passage, as we have a look at it together to finish up, I think unpacks the natural implications of this reality, that Jesus is the way to be right with God. This passage, as it falls out at the end here, it's, it's kind of the natural conclusion you'd have to make from what we've seen already. It's in verses 12 to 21. And so, we'll finish with two big pieces of application together. Uh, here's the first one. This is for you. If you're a Christian, if you believe these things, if your trust is in Jesus, here it is. Friends, we, we cannot help but share this news with the world. It's the most obvious thing in the world, isn't it, at that point? If this is true, surely the most normal reaction is to share this news with the world. Um, you can, you can see the, the simple need that all people have to hear this news in verses 11 to 13. We read it earlier, but look at it there, 11. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. They won't be let down. Verse 12, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's the name of the Lord Jesus, will be saved. He's saying Jew, Gentile, whoever you are, it doesn't matter your background, whatever, every single person who reaches out and calls on the name of this Lord Jesus will be saved. So the natural implication is everyone needs to hear about Jesus, which is exactly where Paul goes. Have a look at verse 14. He says, well, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And then he quotes Isaiah and he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see that chain reaction that unfolds there? You kind of almost want to read it in reverse from verse 15 back up. But 
you need to call on Jesus' name for salvation. He's the only way. Then Paul says, but how can you call on Jesus' name if you don't first believe in him? And how can you believe unless you hear about him? And how will anyone hear unless the message is preached to them? And how will anyone preach unless the preachers are sent? And so, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, if you've caught this message yourself, well, this is our life's calling. This is what we need to do with our lives. Share the message of Jesus with the people around us and send others to go and do likewise. It's the most significant thing you could give your life to. It towers above everything else because the stakes are so massive. It's huge. Now, some some churches don't, some Christians and some churches don't believe that Jesus is the only way to be right with God. And so for them, whether you tell people about Jesus or not, doesn't really matter (laughs) to some extent. But if you're convinced Jesus is the only way to be right with God, the only hope for a world that desperately needs to to hear this news, if you're convinced that's true, it'll, it'll flip your whole life upside down. It'll shape every priority and decision and thing that you could possibly do. Because on the one hand, if people do hear and do believe and do call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. No question, they will. But if they don't, if they don't hear this message, if they don't believe, if they don't call, we've seen what happens. They're lost. And so this shapes everything about how we should use our lives if we're Christians. Now, I do want to stop and acknowledge, I reckon this this passage actually does create a little bit of a funny dynamic for us even tonight (laughs) because it might be that you're here tonight as a guest it might be that you're here and you're pretty new to this stuff and don't know much about Jesus at all and you're hearing some pretty controversial things about Jesus Um, but it might be here because you've been dragged along uh, you know you're you're a kid who's been dragged along by mum or a mum who's been dragged along by a kid uh, and if that is the case, like Adrian said, you're so welcome, it's so good that you're here and every single week there's people here checking out the things of Jesus who are new to this stuff, so you're not alone. But the funny thing about this passage is it is doing two things. It's, it's sharing this message that's so important for you to hear tonight. This is the way to be saved. That's a great message for you to hear, but it's also telling us that a really important thing for Christians to do is to share this message with the people around us. <laughs> and so if you're someone who's visiting with us tonight, that might feel a little bit funny. But I want to say this, if someone has brought you along tonight, <laughs> it's because they've caught how good this news is. Verse 15 calls it good news and that's an understatement. And so if you've been invited along, it's because someone loves you <laughs> and they want you to share in this good news with them. But if you're a Christian here tonight, How can you bend your efforts, your whole life, around this cause? Those two great things. Preach the gospel yourself. Share the news. That doesn't mean preach sermons in church. Just anyone who can hear the, the gospel through what you say. Preach the message. And second, send others to do likewise. How can you bend your life around those two things? First of all, preaching the gospel. What opportunities do you have that you should be taking to preach the gospel? What opportunities could you be making to preach the gospel? At uni, at work, wherever you find yourself, conversations, they'll come. 
people say, what do you do on the weekend? And why do you go to church? That's a bit odd. Why do you believe that? Those questions will come. Be ready to, to give good answers. Be, be ready to ask people questions yourself. Ask good questions. What, what do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you think he's all about? Have you ever read the Bible as an adult? Ask good questions of the people around you. Make the most of those good opportunities. Make opportunities yourself. You might want to consider joining a formal ministry team here. Our kids, youth, churn desperately need leaders every single week there's people here at church with us who need to hear about jesus come and talk to us if you want to join a team like that every ministry team that exists here at ev night exists for the purpose of people hearing about jesus you might be like i cook hamburgers after church what's that got to do? if you don't understand how your ministry connects to the purpose of telling people about jesus it means you don't understand your ministry but it's there so that people can hear about jesus the summer fest team the life team well, there's a whole bunch of things Preach the gospel, share the gospel, but second, send those who will also go to other places and share the message. Send gospel preachers. How can they preach unless they're sent, is what our passage says. This is why we do things like mission prayer points in growth group. I don't know, lots of you belong to our growth groups and each week at growth group we open up an email and together we hear about what someone is doing on the other side of the world or the other side of the country and, and, and we pray together. And I don't know if you're a little bit lost in mo those moments. You're like, what are we doing here? We're, we're sending people. <laughs> we're supporting the preaching of the gospel message as we pray as we consider financially supporting them as well. That's why we have updates about our mission partners. Like last week, we heard about Manning Bible Church, and we heard from a church plant in, in, up in near Taree there. That's so that we would be people who are sending the messengers of the gospel. And so with that stuff, be proactive about it. Take an interest. <laughs> Reach out to some of those people. Ask how you can support them. Pray for them financially as well. You could, you could partner with them. All that's on the church website. Chase it down. And while we're talking about sending gospel workers, let me talk about MTS for a second. Each year our church puts on a whole bunch of people who we're training up to be gospel workers, who are doing gospel work among us here. And those guys need your support. They need your partnership. There's people on MTS this year who financially need your support to keep going. Go talk to an MTSer tonight and be like, hey, how can I support you? And they'll tell you, and they might be like, I'm good, but support that dude, he's in trouble, or whatever. That might happen, but work that out. <laughs> not <laughs> While we're there, not just our MTS support, but send our own gospel preachers here. Even night, we have a responsibility to, to pay for the work of the gospel going out here among us as well. We're behind budget at EV night particularly. So think about how you might partner there. Anyway, you get the point, right? <laughs> There's opportunities everywhere. You just look and you'll see an opportunity. Mission partners, MTS. What? Preach the gospel and send others to do likewise. It's the most important thing we can give our lives to. But secondly, if you're here tonight, if you're here checking out Jesus, don't miss out on Jesus for yourself. It's an absolute tragedy to miss out on Jesus for yourself. The last few verses in our passage, which we don't have time to deal with properly, there's a whole bunch of complex things in there, we're not going to go into that now, but the basic lesson is this, <laughs> tragically Israel, the people of God, many of them missed out on Jesus. Verse 16 says, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. 
They missed the way to be saved. Verse 18, they had every opportunity to hear. Verse 19, they had every opportunity to understand. But you can see the real problem. Verse 21, look at the end of our passage there. Verse 21, but concerning Israel, this is what God said. All day long, I've held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. They're refusing to obey and they're obstinate. That is, they won't change. They're stubbornly, stubbornly refusing to listen to their God. He's holding out his hand saying, come, come to Jesus, come find salvation, believe in him for your salvation and you'll be saved. And they refused. They rejected the message. Here's where this lands for us tonight. We've heard this passage together. You've heard it as it's been read and explained. For many of you, it's sitting on your laps. You know enough. You know enough. You know the way to be right with God. You might have a million questions. If you've got questions, they're great. Ask them. That's a good thing to do. But you know enough. It's not by passion. It's not by what you do. It's all by Jesus. That's a simple truth. It's the, it's the, it's the truth that can save you if you put your trust in Jesus. And so my plea to you tonight is, is, is God's plea to you. He's saying, don't reject the message. Come back to him through Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father God, we want to thank you for the incredible good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that although all of our efforts fall short, what we couldn't do on our own, Jesus has done for us. We praise you for that. We praise you for him. We pray for people here tonight who don't know him, whose trust is not in him. We pray that you'd call them to yourself and that they would respond and put their trust in Jesus. We pray for us, Lord, that you would use us for the cause of the gospel in this world. Please, Lord God, help us to be people who preach the message ourselves and please help us to be those who generously send many more to do the same, all for your glory.